Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've ever wondered just what the golden age of science fiction was all about, and for that matter, the significance of that period in history when pulp fiction was the most popular form of American entertainment, then listen on. Today we are speaking with someone who I initially met at PulpCon in Dayton, Ohio about 10 years ago, and we since became very good friends. I was totally intimidated by him as I had found someone who knew more about Elwin Hubbard's Pulp Fiction than I did. He is an editor, author, and publisher of Murania Press, publishing Blood and Thunder, the award-winning journal for fans and students of adventure, mystery, and melodrama in American popular culture of the early 20th century. Additionally, Murania publishes books on early motion pictures. He was also the keynote speaker to Writers of the Future Volume 35 Awards event. Welcome, Ed Hulse. Hi, John. It's great to be with you. Uh, thanks a lot for inviting me. Absolutely. So how did your interest in Pulp Fiction originally get started? Well, as a matter of fact, I was interested in Pulp Fiction before I ever knew what a pulp magazine was. Uh, I got involved in the early 60s uh, as a result of reading paperback reprints of Pulp Fiction. And one of the earliest was a 1962 ace paperback of a story by Philip Nolan called Armageddon 2419 AD. Now, it turns out that that is a reprint from a 1928 adventure stories pulp, and it's the original first adventure of the character who became known as Buck Rogers. He's not called Buck in the story. He's called Anthony Rogers. But when they made it into a comic strip the next year, they renamed him Buck Rogers. And, of course, he went on from comic strips to uh, radio, movies, and eventually even TV in the early 50s. So I read that when I was about nine between nine and 10 years old. And at roughly the same time, I discovered the Tarzan novels and the John Carter of Mars novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs, which of course I was again reading as paperback reprints. I didn't know at the time as a kid that they had originally been published in pulp magazines back until uh, back to the early teens. Um, so I, I first found out about pulp magazines per se in 1970 when I would have been uh, 17, and it was a book that came out called The Pulps by a guy named Tony Goldstone, and that reprinted a lot of short stories from Pulp Fiction, but more importantly, it presented a, a cover gallery of vintage pulp magazines, and I, and I got fascinated with the art as well as the fiction, and it, it, everything kind of went from there. I actually bought my first pulp magazine uh, at a 1971 comic book convention. I had just turned 18, and I had a job that gave me enough disposable income to start accumulating collectibles. So I started collecting pulps then, and of course I kept reading because, as it turns out, an awful lot of pulp fiction, especially in the science fiction genre, was published in paperback form during the 40s, 50s, and 60s and up. So there was lots for me to read, and while I was amassing a pulp magazine collection, at the same time I was reading the stories from these uh, old paperbacks. Wow. So it was like from the, almost from the get-go for you. Yeah, well, I was, I've always been a reader. My father taught me how to read when I was three years old. So by the time I was nine years old, I was reading at a high school level. 
and um, I was just a voracious reader. We were a family that uh, my dad took me to the library every Saturday morning, and he was a voracious reader himself, although he tended to read nonfiction, and I went after fiction. So between the things that I took out of the library, and I would use my allowance money to buy paperbacks and, and comic books also in those days, and um, so, so I was reading a lot at an early age and absorbing it all. Now, my historical interest in it was not aroused until years later, but I, I was just always a fan of, of uh, adventure fiction and science fiction and, and mysteries and, you know, genre fiction in general. Right, right. Now, I think we met at PulpCon in Dayton, uh, Ohio, and then when that closed down with the passing of Rusty Hevelin, uh, moved to Windy City Pulp Fiction Convention in Chicago. I was introduced to you by Rex Layton, and I listened to you on a panel, and I ended up purchasing an edition of an earlier edition of Blood and Thunder. Obviously, you, you segued or morphed into actually writing about Pulp Fiction. What inspires you to do that? Well, I'm a, I'm a journalist by trade, and um, I did a lot of historical articles about old movies, old comics, fiction in general. And um, I did that more as an avocation because as a journalist, I was covering the home entertainment industry, the video industry and consumer electronics products. So writing about the history of my favorite things was more of an avocation. And as, as a matter of fact, when I was 11 years old, I published my, my first magazine, which in those days we used to call them fanzines, magazines published by fans. And, um, you know, uh, my parents wanted to encourage my literary pursuits, and they bought me a mimeograph, an old hand crank mimeograph for my uh, 13th. Well, it was actually the Christmas after I turned 13. So I was actually in, in eight, eighth grade when I published my, my first magazine with nonfiction articles. It was called Fantasy World, and it covered science fiction and fantasy in movies, TV, uh, old-time radio, and, of course, uh, comics and, and pulp fiction. So as I got older, as I got to be a little bit of a, a better writer, I turned my attentions towards the history of these things, researching them and writing about them seriously for other fans like myself uh, for years to come. Wow. It's interesting. When you say that thing after your 13th birthday, you, you got a, a mimeograph machine. Author and contest judge Kevin J. Anderson, who I believe you met when you were here speaking, when I think it was his 13 or 14, what he wanted for Christmas, it was either Christmas or birthday, when other kids were getting bicycles, he wanted a typewriter because he's always <laughs> wanted to write. So he got a typewriter for his, his birthday. And so it's just, it's interesting. People that are very, very successful and very dedicated have been that way pretty much most of their life. And so that's just, um, I mean, it, it makes sense, but it's very impressive. Yeah, well, we always had a typewriter in the home because my mother um, worked as a paralegal in those days, and she occasionally brought work home, things that she had to type up at home. So we always had a typewriter in the house. And even though I, I didn't learn to touch type, as a matter of fact, I still can't touch type. I've been a professional journalist for 40 years, more than 40 years now, and I still type at the hunt and peck system, but although I've gotten pretty fast at it over the years. But like I say, with a typewriter in the house and the desire to write, 
and the desire to communicate, it, it was something that came naturally to me. And um, I've always enjoyed it. And I, I got more serious about it as I got older. Wow, that's great. Now, a few years ago, you were the keynote speaker at Writers of the Future, where you provided a very nice overview of Pulp Fiction. Do you mind providing that information again? I must admit, I've never seen our Writers of the Future judges so transfixed with keynote speaker as they were when listening to you. So um, if you can like that, I'll just, I will shut off my mic for the next little bit and let you just like rip. Well, uh, I have to tell you, by the way, I'm enormously flattered to hear that because you had and have such a powerhouse group of, of professionals at the Writers of the Future events. I mean, um, I, 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 I honestly can't say I was intimidated, but I remember thinking I better get this right for, the, for this audience. Um, so basically the, the, the speech that I, that I did for you was about the golden age of science fiction. Right. And we talked about how modern science fiction is an outgrowth of the pulp magazine. It was considered too trashy for mainstream fiction. So the, the earliest examples of American science fiction, and, and I say American specifically to distinguish it from things like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, but early American science fiction was born in pulp magazines. And there were a couple of examples from the very early years of the century, but it really gets underway in 1910 with the creation by Edgar Rice Burroughs of John Carter of Mars, whose first adventure appeared in a magazine called The All Story Magazine, published by Frank Muncie. And in Burroughs' first story, Under the Moons of Mars, I can't honestly say that the science was very good because John Carter is an Earthman from shortly towards the end of the Civil War. He finds himself in a cave and he's magically transported to Mars, which in Burroughs' made-up Martian language is called Barsoom. So Carter was uh, a warrior by trade on Earth, and he brought that skill to him to Mars, and he encounters several different races on Mars and eventually becomes aligned with one of them. Well, this was a phenomenally popular story, and it naturally spawned many imitators through the teens. Uh, and of course, Burroughs, two years after writing his first Mars story, uh, invented Tarzan of the Apes, who of course doesn't have a true science fiction connection, but he had many fantastic adventures with lost civilizations and um, uh, strange creatures and whatnot. And one of his adventures, he goes under the, the earth to the earth's core and, and comes upon a, a prehistoric type race with dinosaurs and humanoid beings and whatnot. So Burroughs had a phenomenal imagination. And of course, the success of his tales inspired other writers to write similar stories. But the first true, what we would call the true science fiction, science-based fiction, was published by a guy named Hugo Gernsback, who was a German immigrant who came to America, and in the early years of the 20th century, he became fascinated with electricity and later with radio. And he published some nonfiction magazines called um, Electrical Experimenter, uh, Radio News, and the big one was Science and Invention. 
And he devoted one issue of Science and Invention in 1923 to fictional stories as opposed to fact-based articles. And that was so popular that on the strength of that issue's sales, he decided to start a magazine, a fiction magazine devoted entirely to what he then called scientifiction, one long word. And that became Amazing Stories, which launched in 1926. It was in that magazine that was first published the Buck Rogers story that I alluded to earlier. And also, it was the first magazine to feature a story that took place outside our galaxy. You know, it was, it was relatively common, even in the 20s, for uh, uh, heroes to fly to the moon or to Mars or even to uh, Venus and Jupiter. But for the first time in 1928, an author named E.E. E. Smith wrote a story called The Skylark of Space, which expanded science fiction to uh, intergalactic settings. And he was guessing at a lot of the science, but it turned out that he was more prophetic than he knew. And uh, amazingly, as, as late as the 1960s, there were people working for NASA who had been inspired by this early science fiction and pulps from the 20s and 30s. The most able practitioner of science fiction editing was a guy named John W. Campbell, who sold his first story to Amazing in 1930 and existed for quite a while as a writer before becoming the editor of a magazine called Astounding Stories, which had been founded in 1930 by a publisher named Richard Clayton. Now, under Clayton, Astounding published what is known derisively as space opera, which is kind of a takeoff on the term horse opera that applies to Westerns. And space opera was more or less what it implies, basically Western stories set in outer space or on other planets with white hats and black hats and guys using ray guns instead of six guns and riding in rocket ships rather than on horses. But they weren't terribly accurate scientifically. As a matter of fact, the editor of that book before Campbell took over guy known as Harry Bates, the joke in the industry was that he could take a Western story and if he needed a story to fill one of his issues of astounding stories, he'd simply change it. And he didn't pay any attention to things like, you know, if he was hopping from planet to planet, he didn't pay attention to the topography of a particular planet. So if he had two stories in one issue that took place on Mars, he would change the setting of one of them to Venus. And of course, in those days, it didn't really matter because most of his readers didn't know any more about the planets than he did. But Campbell was different. Campbell had a scientific education. He was grounded in science, but he realized that science fiction would never truly grow and mature and become taken seriously unless it combined real science or at least believable science with professional storytelling. And he insisted on a type of science fiction where the story and the characters were equally as important as the science. And it took a while because the old school pulp writers were pretty much guys who got paid a penny a word, a lot of them were hacks, and they would basically write for any magazine that was, that was buying stories, whether it was a Western magazine, a detective story magazine, a horror magazine, or a science fiction magazine. 
Well, Campbell and Astounding Stories developed a coterie of writers who were specialists in science fiction, and he nurtured them. He gave them story ideas and allowed them to develop the story ideas. And it was under his tutelage that young writers like Robert Heinlein, A.E. Van Vogt, Isaac Asimov, and others got their start. One of his most promising hires was actually somebody he did not originally solicit. Uh, it was a guy who was writing Western stories for his publisher, which was a company known as Street and Smith, and that guy was L. Ron Hubbard. Now, up to that time, I'm talking now about the late 1930s, Hubbard had written a lot of adventure fiction for other publications. He'd written aviation stories, sea stories, uh, war stories, westerns, and uh, he had done a uh, series of stories for a magazine called Argosy called the Hell Job series, which each story was a separate entity that followed a protagonist who worked at a particularly dangerous job. He might be a telephone operator. He might be uh, working in a coal mine. He might be doing this or that. And the, the link was creating an adventure that was unique to that occupation and having getting his protagonist out of some kind of dangerous situation. Well, Hubbard was writing at that time for Street and Smith for their Western magazines, Western Story Magazine, and I think Cowboy Stories also. And the executives at Street and Smith suggested to Campbell, they said, you know, we have this guy Hubbard who's pretty good. You ought to give him a shot at Astounding Stories. And um, Campbell at first was a little dubious because he, he didn't really know Hubbard's work, but Hubbard submitted a story in uh, 1938, and it was published in the magazine's July issue. It had a good reception, so Campbell added Hubbard to his regular stable. It was around this time that the magazine's title was changed from Astounding Stories to Astounding Science Fiction, because Campbell decided at a certain point that he wanted to completely cut off the kind of fantasy or adventure aspect um, and, and stick solely to science fiction. And again, always stressing the reality, the verisimilitude, because he wanted his readers to feel that the types of adventures his writers were, were uh, producing could conceivably take place, if not now and certainly in the future at some point. And he was very successful in this. So successful that during the war years, one of his writers actually wrote a story about an atomic bomb, which the government found out about, and they sent FBI guys to Campbell saying, you know, where did you find out about this? Because as it turned out, the writer, who was a guy named Cleve Cartmill, had accidentally stumbled upon something very close to the A-bomb that our scientists were developing. And the FBI was wondering what this was all about. Well, after talking to the writer and after talking to John Campbell, the, the feds were convinced that this was strictly a coincidence. But it just goes to show how carefully Campbell's writers were following actual scientific principles, that they were really trying to create stories that, that had that patina of, of realism. 
that really could happen and probably would happen at some future date. Well, obviously, you know, the atomic bomb was kind of a horrible development, but it did demonstrate the capabilities that science had. Now, guys like Hubbard wrote were so facile, as it turns out, that they could write stories of, of different types that still had science fictional backgrounds, but had different characters. Uh, under the pen name Rene Lafayette, he, he wrote the adventures of a kind of semi-humorous character called Old Doc Methuselah. Uh, he also wrote a series called The Kilkenny Cats, most of which I think you, you guys at Galaxy Press have reprinted or are going to reprint. And uh, he became extremely well-known in, in the industry. And of course, all good things come to an end. And when Astounding started to fade in the 40s, Hubbard expanded his market, and he started writing for other publishing companies as well. Now, he, he still remained loyal to Campbell, and in fact, it was in Astounding Science Fiction that he originally published uh, the first article, I believe, on Dianetics, which, of course, spun off um, uh, into a full-length book and uh, a lot more. But Hubbard's imagination, even though he did not have the scientific grounding of some of Campbell's other writers... He certainly had the imagination to put all these pieces together. So once again, it was that fusion of scientific knowledge, enthusiasm, unbridled imagination, and sound storytelling techniques that uh, made Astounding the top publication of its day. And it ushered in what fans and historians both refer to as the golden age of science fiction, which lasted from... Uh, roughly 1939 into the late 40s, early 50s. And um, Astounding was never a, ma a, a major seller, like some of the pulps like Ar Argosy Magazine or uh, Blue Book Magazine or Black Mask Magazine, but it had steady, consistent sales, and the readers were incredibly loyal. They always had a big letter column in each issue of the magazine. And they would have a lot of fans who, who were so interested that Astounding and the writers in Astounding, like the Asimovs, the Heinleins, the Hubbards, they eventually turned, they inspired these fans to become writers themselves. So the second generation of professional science fiction writers were actually fans of the early Astounding stories and the early, uh, editorial efforts of, of John W. Campbell. So eventually the pulps, for commercial reasons, not because people didn't like the fiction, but for commercial reasons, the format of the pulp magazine kind of died out in the early 50s, and a lot of science fiction went to digest size publications. And of course, Hubbard continued to write for those. He continued to publish stories in Astounding there, and most of the other guys did too. And it was around that time that as a result of this sustained decade-long attempt to improve science fiction, that mainstream book publishers finally started publishing original science fiction novels in hardcover. You know, most people don't realize we live with science fiction as such a major part of our lives and our culture today. A lot of people don't realize that in terms of mainstream publishing from people like Simon and & Schuster and Doubleday, that's relatively new. They did not publish science fiction in the 20s and 30s because it was considered trashy, 
kind of genre stuff. And as a matter of fact, the generic nickname for it, dating back to the old Amazing Stories days, was they called it that crazy Buck Rogers stuff. Well, thanks to Campbell and his writers and Astounding Science Fiction, they improved the quality of the, of the genre so much that mainstream publishers by the 50s were finally starting to bring out science fiction in deluxe hardcover editions and also the paperback publishers. Uh, Ian Ballantyne, who was a pioneer in the paperback world, formed his own label in the early 50s called Ballantyne Books. And Ian and his wife, Betty, decided very early on to specialize in science fiction. So they published a lot of it, some of it reprinted from magazines, and later on some of it original written for the, for the paperbacks themselves. So uh, even though the pulps kind of faded away as a format, the fiction and the trends in that fiction lived on. And so a lot of us who were baby boomers who, who were born after World War II We've grown up with science fiction in the paperback era and in the, the digest uh, era. And, of course, uh, in more recent times, we get books like The Writers of the Future with, with all the contest winners, all the people from around the world who submitted stories and who are carrying on and building on the traditions of the old pulp writers. And they've got different spins on stories. They've got different attitudes but the essential qualities of imagination, of looking towards the future, of trying to figure out how, how we can improve the human race through science, these are all things that began back in the pulp magazine era, but now they've been brought to fruition by this new generation of writers that you're publishing and the Writers of the Future collections. Well, that's... That, that, I mean, that's just, I was totally fascinated when you gave that uh, briefing at the award ceremony and I was just, I was just found myself, oh yeah, I'm running this, uh, this podcast because I was just totally interested in just following along with what you were saying. It's just, that's just, to me, it's very, very fascinating that the history that has led up to what we have right now with the current uh, science fiction, fantasy, alternate yeah. history, um, just that whole, how it's, how it's evolved and grown. So now... During the, um, what was the golden age, you had science fiction and then there was um, fantasy, which was pretty much kept, I think, a bit separate. It's kind of like evolved. And I know there are those that say that science fiction is an offshoot of fantasy and then others that say, no, they're too distinct. And then some that say the other. What's your, what's your take on well, that? Well, I mean, it, it, it's true that science fiction, fantasy, and stories of the occult were kind of linked together in the early days. And in the 20s, there were some magazines that printed them all, you know, under two covers. The premier magazine of fantasy was called Weird Tales, started in 1923, and it gave us some, some really tremendous authors who are still read and collected today, most prominently H.P. Lovecraft, who was the master of horror, uh, his stories all appeared in, in pulps. He had no mainstream success at all. All of his famous stories, which have now been reprinted countless times in hardcovers and paperbacks, were all originally published in pulp magazines, and most of them in Weird Tales. He also did a couple in Astounding Stories before John Campbell edited it. So 
I don't think Campbell would have bought Lovecraft stories because they did not have the rigorous scientific underpinnings that he wanted because they were more fantasy and they were more horror. But Weird Tales also gave us Robert E. Howard, who was the creator of Conan the Barbarian, who's also become, you know, in decades, uh, uh, later decades, has become a major figure in American pop culture. He's been in movies. He's been in comic books. Uh, he's been in TV. Again, this is a guy who, who uh, came along in the 1930s. Howard, unfortunately, might have gone on to write science fiction, but he was a very unhappy young man, and he committed suicide at the age of 30 in 1936, just as his career was really starting to blossom. But his Conan fiction, which, again, while it was not science fiction at all, it was adventure fantasy kind of fiction set in a prehistoric, not a prehistoric world, but, a, but a, let's say an ancient world that, that was parallel to what really existed. Um, he had tremendous imagination and he might have become a science fiction writer. But I would say, John, that it was uh, though, the fantasy, science fiction, horror, tales of the occult and the supernatural, they kind of coexisted through the 1920s. But by the time Hugo Gernsback came along with amazing stories, that's when you started to see the split. That's when you started to see uh, a, a much greater emphasis on science. Now, like I say, the early writers didn't get it all right. I mean, they, there, were, there were things about science that they just didn't know. There were, uh, they would work in hypotheses into stories that years later we'd find out didn't hold water scientifically. But the fact was they were, they were all moving in that direction. So Weird Tales, which did publish some science fiction, there was a, a writer named Edmund Hamilton uh, who wrote a series for Weird Tales about the Interstellar Patrol. And it was just what it sounds like, kind of cops in space. And um, that appeared in Weird Tales. But ultimately, when magazines like Amazing Stories and Astounding Stories siphoned off the science fiction writers, Weird Tales at that point was pretty much relegated to straight horror, fantasy, uh, tales of the supernatural in general. Uh, ghost stories, things like that. So um, uh, I kind of got lost there <laughs> with your original question. No, just the whole thing on the, on the, uh, the differentiation between science fiction, fantasy, yeah. where it was separate, and then now it seems like it's, there's a melding of it, too, in, in a lot of uh, epic fantasy and the big science fiction where you've got them interweaving right now. I know Brandon Sanderson uh, considers that science fiction is an offshoot from fantasy. You know, so... Yeah, it's in a way it's kind of gone it's it's kind of come full circle and there are some uh you know even going back to the 50s I should say not long after the golden age ended uh there you started to see the emergence of science fiction stories that were alternate histories um you know like what what happened if Hitler had won World War II what happened if the south won the civil war and and they were kind of alternate histories Based, based on these different, and, and those are considered science fiction. There's a great one called, uh, I think the Civil War story is called Bring the Jubilee or something like that. I forget yeah. the author's name now. But, uh, but anyway, yes, you did. It, things kind of went full circle because it turned out that, that some writers were just not comfortable or did not have the necessary educational background 
to be able to write what they call hard science. There are a lot of writers, guys like Larry Niven, who 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 are specialists in hard science, and they write about you know future militaries and you know wars going on on other planets, things like that. Whereas other writers go more towards the imaginative, and they use the science as a jumping off point for for a more imaginative story that's not necessarily grounded in in hard science uh, facts. Yeah, well, that was um, I mean, as early on with. Um Andre Norton with the Witch World series. Right. You know, yeah. it went from science and in the real, our world to then through this portal into the, the magic world. Yeah. And, you know, there are some people who consider the Tolkien stories to, to be borderline science fiction. I don't get that connection myself, and I wouldn't make it, but there are people who feel that way. And I certainly know plenty of science fiction fans. I mean, myself, I never had any trouble distinguishing it as fantasy, but I know a lot of science fiction fans who will, you know, read Tolkien just as they would Asimov or, or uh, um, uh, you know, any of the other guys. Right. And, and then you have, you have people like Ray Bradbury, who is known as a science fiction writer, and yet Bradbury came at it from another direction altogether. Bradbury is a guy who's always been suspicious of science and technology. And a lot of his stories concentrate or are set in kind of, uh, I don't want to say dystopian, but he tends to be a little more involved in the effect of science on the human condition. And um, so he's, he's, he's taken that in some very interesting directions. And he's another guy who's... Yeah, I think that's like Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, th the great thing about science fiction is... There's room for so much. It's in years gone by, there have been different areas that got focused on by different writers, by different editors, by different magazines, but it has become so tremendously encompassing, welcoming, and it's so diverse. The, the, the diversity of ideas and concepts and character types and the, the unlimited imagination it takes. I mean, you have to envy people who can come up with entire civilizations and even Burroughs. Burroughs was hardly, Edgar Rice Burroughs was hardly what you'd call a hard science guy. He was making it up as, as he went along. But when he wrote his story set on Mars back in the, in, in the teens, he set out, he, he did plans of entire civilizations and different cities and different races and even religions. I mean, a couple of the early Martian novels, especially the gods of Mars, are specifically about the influence of religion on the Martian people and how that sets some races against other races for reasons of religion. So, I mean, does that sound familiar? We live through that to this day. And the fact that Burroughs was writing about that in 1912, 1914, 1915 is really kind of amazing. And it just goes to show what an imaginative writer can do with a science fictional concept. Right. Now, in your, um, in your book on the Blood and Thunder Guide to Pulp Fiction, which I found absolutely fascinating, you published it, in, the one published in 2019. I bought the earlier one, but this is like two or three times uh, thicker now with much more information. You cover all the different genres, all the different highlights and what was doing well, what wasn't doing well. 
But he also made comment in there at various points about certain certain authors whose name on a cover or story in a in one of the the books would actually raise the uh, circulation. And then later now, now with the collectors, the value of the pulp. How does that work? Well, I think the the uh, prime exponent of that theory is Robert E. Howard, who I mentioned before, who's the guy who created Conan the Barbarian and other characters for Weird Tales. Uh, I think I mentioned that at the time, he was just another, basically another contributor to that magazine. And when he committed suicide in 1936, his work was kind of out of print. There was a guy, another Weird Tales writer named August Derleth, who actually started a small press label called Arkham House to get Lovecraft and later Howard back into print. But otherwise, Howard was kind of forgotten for a long time, for many years. There was a mass market paperback reprinting of the Conan stories in 1953, but it didn't sell all that well. And there were a couple of other small press reprints. What really kicked off the Conan boom and turned Howard pulps into expensive collector's items were the 1960s paperback reprints of the Conan stories with covers by a guy named Frank Frazetta, who started out as a comic strip artist and became a tremendous cover illustrator for fantasy science fiction. And his Conan paperbacks, which I, I think the first one was reprinted in 1966, and by that time Howard had already been dead 30 years, the, popular, the renewed popularity of Conan, people started searching for Howard's other pulp fiction. They were so impressed by the Conan stories because Howard was another one of these guys. He considered himself a journeyman uh, pulp writer. He wrote sports stories. He wrote Western stories. He wrote straight adventure stories, what we would call soldier of fortune stories. Uh, like I say, he never, he never got around to strict science fiction because he, he didn't have that grounding but he probably would have because he was another one of these guys who had tremendous intellectual curiosity. And a lot of the knowledge that he picked up that he used in his other types of stories was based on his own reading and his own research. Of course, the Westerns came more naturally to him because he grew up in rural Texas, some rural small town Texas. But there's a guy whose books now, for example, just to give you an example, um, the first issue of Weird Tales with a Conan story, the December 1932 issue, as recently as a few years ago, as recently as, say, when you and I first met at, at uh, the Pulp Convention, that might have been in, in a really nice condition. That might have been a $1,000 magazine. Today, less than, you know, 10 years later, copies of that landmark magazine with that first Conan story are now selling for up to $10,000. Wow. And even his sports stories, he, was, he, he loved writing boxing stories. He did a lot of stories about boxing. And even Pulps with his sports stories, which don't have any fantasy or adventure content, even they go for hundreds and hundreds of dollars, whereas an issue of the same magazine without might sell for like 50 bucks. By the same token, an issue of a magazine like Thrilling Adventures which published a lot of L. Ron Hubbard's straight adventure stories, the issue with a Hubbard story can sell for eight to 10 times more than the issue without a Hubbard story. 
Uh, and of course, there's a lot of scholarship that collectors have have picked up on because Hubbard also wrote for for magazines like Thrilling Adventures under pseudonyms. So they now have to figure out which pseudonym is Hubbard's and which was used by other writers. Because occasionally, like for example, if, if they were going to use two stories by the same writer in one issue, the editor would say, well, we don't want to have two stories by the same guy. So the first story would go under his real name. And the second story would go under a pseudonym. I know one of the uh, offhand, one of the pseudonyms that Hubbard used for the adventures was uh, Lieutenant Scott Morgan. That was one of his uh, pen names. Um, yeah, he had about 16 pen names he used between all the different magazines. Yeah, sure. You know, and including, I mentioned before, Rene Lafayette for, for the science fiction uh, stories. So, right. So, and, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the Blood and Thunder Guide to Pulp Fiction, because I wanted to try and give some of that information to fans who were starting out so they'd know what pulps to look for. But as you get more immersed in the hobby, and by the way, pulp, pulp collecting, even just recently, even just in the last year or two since I saw you last at the Writers of the Future, even, even in just the last couple of years, pulp magazine prices have, have soared dramatically, uh, mostly as an influx of uh, collectors from the comic book world. It turns out that vintage comic books now are so expensive that a lot of guys are looking for items that are kind of related but not so expensive. So they tend to like the, the covers on pulp magazines and the types of stories that pulps run. So the magazines are uh, the pulp magazines are are going up dramatically in price just in the last couple of years. I mean, something that I paid you know three or four hundred dollars for just a couple of years ago. Now suddenly I see it at auction; it goes for eleven hundred dollars. So it becomes more important as as the prices go up for collectors to get educated and find out which are the authors in most demand and decide how much money they're willing to spend for magazines containing stories by those authors. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Now, the whole thing of, because we're the audience we've got here, a lot of them are aspiring writers, or even just writers that just want to be able to improve their craft. Why is the knowledge of Pulp Fiction important for a writer? Well, what happened is, for, first of all, Pulp Fiction got a bad name early on, because in the in the early years of of pulp magazines, the first the first pulp magazine, the first all fiction magazine for a mass market audience, was published in 1896. I would say for the first 10 or 15 years, the fiction in those early pulps was kind of an outgrowth of what they used to call dime novel stuff or nickel weekly stuff, which was really trashy, trashy fiction, not terribly well written. Eventually, it evolved, and you had a lot of fine writers who, who eventually came out of the pulps because it was easier if you were a fiction writer and you wanted to sell to magazines. It was easier as a novice to break into the pulp magazines than it was to break into what they called the slick magazines, things like the Saturday Evening Post or Collier's or Hearst's Cosmopolitan, which were the expensive middle-class magazines on slick paper with a lot of color advertisements from major products. Um, you know, the pulps at that same time were considered a little trashier, but it was easier to break in. And, and of course, all the writers at that time dreamed of honing their craft in the pulps and then taking their knowledge and their increased skill level 
and crafting stories for the slick magazines, which not only insisted on a better quality of writing, but they also had different slants to stories. You know, they were much more interested in romance uh, and character development, whereas the pulps tended to be more action-oriented and plot-oriented as, as opposed to character-oriented. But Now, one, one thing, too, though, wasn't the readership of the pulps considerably larger than the, than the slicks? It, well, yes and no. In terms of the actual circulation, they were comparable. But the pulp audience, in other words, you were much more likely to find working class and lower middle class readers gravitating to the pulps, whereas the solidly middle class and upper middle class people would go to the slicks. So in terms of the actual numbers of the, of the potential audience, the universe of readers for each type of fiction, they were roughly equal. But... Uh, the, the the real point that I'm that I'm getting at is as pulp fiction developed, you had people like the perfect example is Dashiell Hammett, who specialized. He got away from what people used to call purple prose, which was kind of the ornate, adjective-driven kind of flowery prose and sometimes lurid prose that were in the early pulps. Hammett stripped all that away, and in that respect, he was very much like Ernest Hemingway, who was very much a mainstream writer. They had similar styles in that they relied on shorter sentences, active verbs, you know, fewer adjectives, more realistic dialogue, um, telling, telling their stories with action rather than discussing things, rather than talking all the plot points. They would show the plot points happening as they occurred in the narrative. So, in terms of just what we now consider good writing, that actually started in the pulps. It was, it was a form of uh, an economy of expression, you might say, that, that really now we consider the essence of good writing. And I yeah. mean, if you're being taught writing today, they're saying, you know, go easy on the adjectives and adverbs. Don't use passive verb construction if you can avoid it. Um, you know, don't have too much plot exposition, have things actually happen rather than explaining them happen in the, in the third person. So these kinds of, of, of uh, methods of storytelling, which evolved in the pulps, eventually made their way into the mainstream via writers like Hemingway and, of course, John O'Hara, also in the 30s, and, and numerous others. And it has kind of filtered down in, into writing generally and I think that those qualities are still very much sought after by editors. Obviously, we don't have as many magazines publishing fiction now as, as we did back in the 30s and 40s. But um, the demands seem to be pretty much the same. Okay. I get it on that. So for a writer to understand their roots, to be able to come up and just see the evolution, like you just said right there, the beginning of of the active voice as compared to the passive. Uh, I know there were a lot of different uh, essays that um, Owen Hubbard wrote for like magazines back in the day mm -hmm. in the 30s and 40s for aspiring writers. Now you attend, did you attend any of the uh, workshop itself for Writers of the Future? I did, I sat in on a couple of them. So what's your basic take or just, just your evaluation from coming in from 
an adjacent field of what connected with, with literature to the writers of the future, its value and its impact on the future of, of writing. Well, what struck me, and again, I can't say anything definitive based on, on just having uh, sat in on a couple of those things, but it, it occurs to me that the generation of writers who, who, who are submitting to you the future voices of, of science fiction, I think that, that what impresses me about them is, is they have a real grasp of changing societal trends let's say, and different, the way our civilization has evolved. I think they're getting a, a lot closer to emotion. I mean, uh, th there used to be a criticism in the old days that there wasn't enough emotion in science fiction, that some of it was a little cold. Now, obviously, the best writers got around that, and they humanized their stories while retaining the focus on, on hard science. And, and a lot of them anticipated the changes that technology and futuristic technology would have on the human condition. Heinlein was one of them who realized that early on back in the 40s. The writers um, that I observed in, in, your, uh, in your workshop seem more forward-thinking in terms of the human aspects of these stories. In other words, the impression that I got was that they're using science fiction and, and uh, the tropes of earlier science fiction to find out a new way to illuminate aspects of the human condition. It seems to me that that is much more prominent now than it was years ago in science yeah. fiction polls. Yeah, so, I mean, another aspect to it as well, because you know, we're talking about the world of pulps, the writers of the future is also short stories. I mean, it's up to 17,000 words, and every story has an illustration, and that's something that, that Owen Hubbard found very, very important from the, the pulp days because he, he was one of the few writers that actually established good relationships with artists and several of his artists are the ones that helped start, like Frank Kelly Freeze, that helped start the Illustrator Contest. You know, so that, that's another thing too there. There's, there's that part of, of that time period which is pulled forward and there seems to be some truth to the fact that that, that really enhances the, the art and the story go hand in hand. You know, you mentioned Frank Frazetta. He was one of our first judges for the Illustrated Contest. So I think that, that's an aspect, too, which I don't know if you saw that so much, but I definitely see that that's something that, that he really considered important. That was the last genre that he really wrote in, too, was science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. And because um, he saw that as the herald of possibility and, and that the future is, is thought up by the science fiction writers, then you've got the scientists that, want to, that wonder, you know, I wonder if I can make that happen. Yeah. And by the way, the, the tradition of writers having this symbiotic relationship with illustrators, that's something that goes way back in the pulps because very, very often cover artists would just submit generic paintings that they had come up with and an editor would say, oh, this is great. I can't wait to use this cover. And he would then assign a writer to write a story around the cover illustration rather than the other way around. Now, that's not to say that it didn't happen like that. More often than not, the cover illustrators were, were given a story or they were given a synopsis of a story. And they'd say, well, this is what happens in this story. And it takes place on Mars and it has three rocket ships and blah, blah, blah. Whereas occasionally some artist would bring in a, a cover that so inspired the editor, he'd say, well, I know, you know, Hubbard is just the guy to turn this cover into a story and, and boom, off it would go. So even that 
that you're describing that that your guys at Writers of the Future are, are are coming up with now, even that has has antecedents in the pulp world. Yeah. And just as a point to the last four um, editions of Writers of the Future has been that exact thing. We had one of our our judges create the cover art and then we would get one of our writer judges to write a story against that cover art. And we just started that recently and that's that's been really fun. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. And it's a great exercise. It's a great exercise for writers to, to start them out with a, with, with a single idea or a single illustration and say, okay, it's all yours. Use your imagination. Build a story. Build a 17,000-word story around this, around this yeah. painting. You got to have tremendous admiration for anybody who can do that. And it seems to me that your people live up to that challenge. Yeah, definitely. So now, before I get into like doing the, the final bit here where we're going to go over, um, you know, what people can look forward to, you know, with Mirania Press, anything else I didn't ask you about that you wanted to cover? You know, the, I, I think the only thing I would say is the, the one thing that bothers me sometimes about younger writers is some of them don't seem open-minded enough. And I'm not saying it's a, a big portion, but some of them, and I'm not saying I didn't detect this at your particular event. I'm talking about in general from other young writers I've spoken to in other fields. They don't seem to be open-minded enough to, to read some of the old stuff, the, the old pulp stuff. They, they just don't think it has anything for them. And I think they would be surprised. I'd like to see younger people approach pulp fiction with, a, with an open mind. And by the way, there's got to be something to it that still connects because we are in, you know, we talk about the golden age of science fiction, the old pulps from the 30s and 40s. We're in a golden age of pulp reprints. I mean, thanks in part to Galaxy Press and a lot of small press publishers, including my own in a small way. There is more pulp fiction in print now that if you were to buy all the magazines they originally appeared in, it, it, you'd, you'd spend a million dollars trying to buy all those magazines. I'm not exaggerating. There's so much stuff in print. It's so easy to read. And, and I would say, you know, yeah, maybe you won't get anything from it. Maybe you've already, as, as a young writer, maybe you've already reached uh, this, the level of skill that a lot of these old journeymen reached, you know, 50 years ago. But there might be something in this that will inspire you, or there might be fiction that will uh, make you understand better how you got to, to a certain level. Because what a lot of people don't realize is how much pulp fiction and the conventions of pulp fiction have seeped into the rest of our popular culture. Because pulp guys, when the pulp started dying, pulp guys went to Hollywood, they started writing movies, they went into TV in the early days of TV and wrote TV scripts. Some of them wrote dramatic radio shows. And a lot of those, some of them wrote comic books. There are so many different ways in which pulp storytelling has seeped into our popular culture for years and years and years. Because a lot of these guys who started out in the 30s and 40s were still active in the 60s and 70s. And so I would just... My advice to younger writers would be don't be too dismissive of this if you're, if you're inclined to think that, well, there's nothing in that old crap for me. You know, we're, we've already passed that point. 
I, th I think you'd find uh, that you could learn something from reading this stuff. And it's not like it's hard to find now because reprints are everywhere. That's great. Thank you. That's, I think that's a really important point. And that's something I'm, that uh, I hope people really get because it, I mean, Hollywood has definitely learned their lesson. That's most of your biggest grossing movies are pulp derivatives. I mean, sure. Star Wars is almost all pulled from pulps, right. like various themes. Right. So in terms of what's, you know, with Mirania Press, what projects do you have coming up and, and what do you recommend? Like I've, I've mentioned a couple times now, The Blood and Thunder Guide to uh, Pulp Fiction, which, I mean, I, I use that a lot. I bought, I think, 80 copies of it or 90 copies yeah. of it. And when anybody asks stuff, I, I give them a copy of the book. So that, okay, here you go. Here's your, so you can get an understanding of what Pulp Fiction really is and how much it's evolved in it because they, they have no idea. They have just no idea. So I think between that and, and this, this uh, podcast will hopefully help um, enlighten further. But tell me about some of your upcoming projects and what you recommend people get if they're not familiar with your press. Well, actually, the, the, you've already mentioned the first thing I would recommend is the Guide to Pulp Fiction, which is not only my bestseller. I've, I've got 51 different publications on my website, uh, which includes issues of the magazine Blood and Thunder. But the Guide to Pulp Fiction specifically is my biggest seller, and it's also used as a text in uh, at least a half a dozen colleges. might be up to seven or eight colleges by now. So where I've had the colleges, you know, order 30 copies at a time, and it's because they're using them in a class. They're distributing right. them to a class. So it's being used there. And um, I, I'm now getting a little bit of a sales surge on Amazon, which I can't really explain. But I'm thinking that with all the comic book collectors who are, who've been getting into pulp collecting the last year or so, I have a feeling they're eventually finding out about the pulp guide and buying it so they can educate themselves more as they get deeper into collecting. In terms of what we have coming up this year, uh, I have to say I haven't been very busy because I've been doing a, a book for another company on vintage paperbacks, which will be coming out in the fall. But from Urania Press, later this year, I'm saying sometime between May and June, I'm going to be launching another 10 volumes in a series that we call The Forgotten Classics of Pulp Fiction. These are older stories that have not been in print in any form for many, many decades. Uh, stories from the 20s and 30s that um, were printed in the magazines. Some of them were printed in hardcovers, some of them weren't, but none of them are in print today. And I consider them good enough that they deserve another airing. So we did a, a first 10 volume set a couple years ago that sold very well for us. And I've got a second set of those and some of, the, some of the biggest authors in the business are included in there, like uh, Max Brand, who was, Max Brand was the most successful pen name of a guy named Frederick Faust. He mostly wrote Westerns, but he also wrote some mysteries and, and a lot of historical adventures. So I have one of his early historical adventures called The Sword Lever from 1917, which was very well received at the time. It was published in hardcover, eventually went out of print, was never reprinted. I'm not sure it was even reprinted in paperback, but uh, I'll be bringing that out. And um, of course, all this is on my website. And then there's going to be another issue of Blood and Thunder. Um, I've been publishing it. I used to publish it as a quarterly periodical. It got to be too much for me. So I've been publishing issues at irregular intervals. 
And a, a lot of the time between issues depends upon how many people submit articles to me because there are other people doing independent research. And, you know, once they've done all they can with their topic, they look to me to publish it. So that also will be out sometime in the spring. And then I have a book coming up on the history of B-movies, inexpensive B-movies. It's called Wage Slaves in the Dream Factory. And the subtitle is Low-Budget Filmmaking During Hollywood's Golden Age. So that, again, is about just what the title implies. You know, you, you see a lot of books about the big stars. The John Waynes, the Cary Grants, the Gene Harlows, the Greta Garbos. Nobody writes books about the little people who didn't make thousands of dollars a week. They made like $250 a week. And instead of making movies over a six-month period, they made movies in six days. It was a whole substrat of Hollywood that is not very well documented. But it's something that I love. And to, to give me an idea how long I've been... I haven't been working on the book this long, but I've been collecting information that's in the book for more than 40 years. There's interview material in this book with guys that I spoke to in 1973. So, um, and I, this is all material that I have not worked into one of my previous books. So I've put it all together. I've done really extensive research with other industry sources. And uh, I'm very, very proud of this book. This book will be out in uh, late March. And okay, and all the stuff they can find at, is it Murania Press, M-U-R-A-N-I-A press.com? Right, Murania Press. Murania, for those who don't know, is uh, the underground kingdom from a 1934 serial called The Phantom Empire, which starred, of all things, Gene Autry. It was his first starring film, and it was a combination of Western and science fiction. And it turns out that under his ranch is a underground kingdom of Murania um, who uh, has a mad, a mad monarch who uh, wants to invade the upper world. And Gene Autry is the one who foils that plan. Anyway, I, I have always loved that serial. It's something I saw as a kid. So when I started this little publishing empire of mine, I decided to call it Murania. And well, that answers that question for me because like, <laughs> yeah, so, so it's MuraniaPress.com and all my, all my books are there and they're also on Amazon. So that's pretty much what I'm working on. Uh, and even though I've got most of that stuff scheduled for the first half of the year, I've got other things that I'm just not ready to announce yet because they're too, you know, I, I'm not far enough along to, to want to announce them and give specific dates, but now that I have this other book, which I did for another publisher, I've been working on that for much of the last year. Now that that's finally done, uh, I can get back to my own stuff. Well, that's good. And everything will be there on uraniapress.com to see how things are rolling out. Right. Great. Well, that's awesome. Thank you, Ed. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We have also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. 
It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Get your copy of the Writers of the Future anthology containing the award-winning stories and art, which is online in virtually every country in the world. Again, thank you very much, Ed. Thank you, John. It was a real pleasure.